Okay, church, if you could please open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We are about to read this morning one of the uh, most famous chapters and popular chapters in all of Scripture, rivaling that of Psalm 23, rivaling that of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. We come to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, a chapter of Scripture that is probably quoted most often at weddings. You may be very familiar with it, frequently read at weddings. As you're turning there, the chapter of love, 1 Corinthians 13, I want to start by referencing a song that I actually haven't heard a a lot, and I don't listen to this artist a lot, though I've heard him a lot. Uh, In fact, our dentist, we used to have a dentist that would listen to this artist while he worked on our teeth, which is, you know, I guess interesting. It's neat. Um, But the song is All You Need Is Love by the Beatles. And instantly I'm seeing smiles break out across the room. We all know this song. Even if you've never just outright decided to listen to this song, you've probably heard it on a commercial. You've probably heard it on a movie. It's very, very famous and popular. This song, I got to doing some research in it to see, you know, when it was written and kind of what the purpose behind it is. Because all throughout the song, the lyrics mention that there um, is no one that you can save that won't be saved. With I'm obviously not super familiar with the entire song, but every line of the song says that there's nothing that you can do that won't get done some other way, essentially is what the point of the song is. Therefore, all you need is love. And it repeats this line, I mean, it has to be a thousand times in the song. All you need is love. All you need is love. Love is all you need. And it's a good summary for how our culture thinks about just religion and life in general. If we could all just love, everything would be okay. Love is kind of the highest good, and everybody admits that and recognizes that. The problem is, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago at uh, Midway, I guess is where I would preached on that Sunday night. I would mentioned that one of the problems is in how we define love. And it's a little elusive in our culture. Love is almost this mystical feeling that you have towards other people where you want their good, but it might manifest itself in different ways, and it's very debatable when it manifests itself whether or not that is loving or love. Everyone thinks they know what is most loving, and many times they disagree on some things. So it isn't just love that Christians are, pers- are to pursue. Rather, it's a right love. And the Bible defines love, and we're going to see this in our passage over the next couple of weeks, maybe three weeks, defines love in terms of what you do. Love is an action. It is a commitment to do something. It's not an emotion, though it can be very emotional. It's not a feeling, though it can stir up strong feelings within us. It's not something that you fall into and fall out of. It is something that you decide to do. It is a willful decision that we make to act in a certain way. It is a commitment that we make to behave in a certain way towards one another. And depending on how you, what your foundation of love in, that will determine what you do towards others in the name of love. So Christians would look at the scriptures and say, this is the definition of love. And we would do the things in the scriptures towards God and towards other people, and that is by definition love. 
The world, on the other hand, not operating from this same foundation, might understand love differently and they would act differently accordingly. But there's one more thing about love, and that's going to be our focus for this morning. Love is more than an action. Love is also how we do what we ought to do. Love is, is what we do. It is an action, but it is also more than an action. It is how we do what we ought to do as well, which leads to our main point this morning. Love is the necessary fuel of Christian service. Love is the necessary fuel of Christian service. So with all of that kind of being said, to give you brief context, we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're on about the eighth topic in the letter, chapters 12 through 14, and it's spiritual gifts and order in the church. Well, right in the middle of this whole section on spiritual gifts and order in the church, that's what we're talking about. Right in the middle, we get chapter 13, the love chapter. And I don't think that Paul or the Lord intends for us to take this chapter as just a brief stutter in Paul's thought, where he's talking about the church, and then he just stops and says, oh, by the way, I just need to talk to you about love real quick. And then he talks about love, and then he gets back to his topic. He wants us to understand chapter 13 in light of chapters 12 and 14, and really in light of his entire letter. So that's what we're going to attempt to do. We're going to attempt to understand it where it's located, and then afterwards, we will attempt to apply it to uh, all of life, especially to our lives and to the church. So hopefully you're there. Chapter 13, uh, I'm going to invite everyone to stand together for the reading of God's Word, just in honor of the fact that we're not going to read just some opinion about love. We are going to read the truth about love as it is recorded in God's holy Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three. 
but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the living word, Jesus Christ. Thank you for demonstrating and for being a perfect embodiment of the love that we just read about. Thank you for not keeping a record of our wrongs, but for giving us in Christ Jesus. Holy Spirit, this morning, would you illuminate your word? Would you soften our hearts that we might receive your word as what it is, the authoritative word of God? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. So in the first three chapters, I mean the first three verses of chapter 13 here, we see Paul speaking about uh, the gift of tongues. If I speak in tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, if I have all faith, if I can comprehend all these mysteries, if I give away all that I have and I don't have love, I am nothing, I gain nothing. As we move into this passage we need to keep in mind the transition into this from the previous passage. If you look in chapter 12, in verse 31, it says to earnestly desire spiritual gifts that will help us to serve the church better. Specifically, it, he labels them higher gifts that are these gifts that excel at serving the church better. But it doesn't mean that those who possess those higher gifts are somehow greater or higher than anyone else. We saw last week in the body of Christ, we are all of equal value and importance. So the one who lifts himself up and says, well, look at what I can do. You can't do that. God says you are nothing. But then to the one who is low and says, well, I can't do what everyone else can do, God says, you are something. We are all have equal value in the body, whether we have a higher gift or not. But we all have spiritual gifts that are intended to serve one another. And moving into chapter 13, Paul is now showing us how we can serve the church better. Love. Love is... In the words of verse 31 of chapter 12, the still more excellent way. We'll break that down a little bit more next week. You see, the Corinthians were misusing and abusing the spiritual gifts. They really liked the spiritual gifts that looked like their culture. When you had these temples and these priests and these worshipers of these false deities would get lost in this ecstatic trance and mutter to their God in ways that other people couldn't understand. You looked at that and you said, wow, that person, they must be close to the gods. And the Corinthians, they want to look impressive. They want to be thought of in this way. So it makes sense that they might be drawn and attracted to spiritual gifts that appear to be more mystical than the others. So Paul is attempting to correct their abuse and misuse of the spiritual gifts. They're not intended to serve self, but the church, and to build up the church in love. So he is especially going to focus on tongues. We'll see that in chapter 14. He's also going to hang out heavily on prophecy. This tells us that this is probably the gift that the Corinthians were most interested in. Maybe they had written about it in their letter. We don't have that letter, so we don't know. Maybe Paul just knew that they were struggling with this, and he just knew to address it. It's hard to say. 
but we can at least say that it was a big deal in their church. When we get to chapter 14, we'll look at that. So this is where the love chapter comes in. He sees their misuse and abuse. He tells them how the church ought to be composed. And then he shows them the most excellent way to exercise their gifts. Now you'll notice in verses 1 through 3, he's continuing the theme of spiritual gifts. We have several gifts mentioned or alluded to here. Tongues, prophecy, knowledge, faith, generosity. These are gifts that are listed earlier in 1 Corinthians 12, but also in Romans chapter 12. You can go and look. There's some gifts there that are mentioned, some a little bit different than 1 Corinthians. And it's no coincidence that if you look at the list in Romans chapter 12, in verse 9, immediately following the gifts listed there, Paul says this, after mentioning the gifts, he says, let love be genuine. It's not a coincidence that we see the same thing here with the spiritual gifts and now this instruction to love. So our first point this morning that we'll unpack together, the Holy Spirit is the giver of spiritual gifts. Love is the fuel. So the Holy Spirit gives us gifts, and we can use those in a way that is not helpful or effective. We do that when we exercise these gifts without love. Look at Paul's examples. If I speak in tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Feel the weight of that. You can have these spiritual gifts, not have love with it, and be nothing. Love is the fuel of spiritual gifts. So it mentions the gift of tongues first. It's a verbal gift, and it's exercised through speaking. But without love fueling it, it's just meaningless noise. And when we see this phrase, clanging cymbal or noisy gong, several of the religions of that day would utilize those in their worship services. They would sound off these gongs and cymbals as a way to say, we are now worshiping our God. I think it's very possible that Paul intends for the Corinthians to see, if you are exercising this gift in a way without love, it is as though you are reverting back to your prior worship experiences before Christ. Even if that's not what he intends, the point is pretty clear. It's accomplishing nothing. I'll make a brief comment here about the phrase tongues of men and angels. We're going to come back to that in the near future. Paul isn't suggesting here that tongues is an angelic language. He's using a literary device here, and he's done this multiple times in his letters. The literary device here is hyperbole. It is an exaggeration for emphasis. So look ahead at the following examples, and you'll see what I'm talking about. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith as to remove mountains, if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, some of your translations may say boast, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Paul is intentionally using exaggeration 
not intending to say what the gifts are actually doing. He's trying to say, if you have the most magnificent manifestation of the spiritual gifts, if you can speak in tongues with angelic excellence, if you have prophetic powers to understand all things, you have such faith that you can tell that mountain to be uprooted as Jesus alluded to, and it would be uprooted and thrown into the sea. If you can do all of that, but you don't have love, it's nothing. He's making his point well. Love is very important. Without love, our gifts cannot accomplish what the Lord intends them to accomplish. They do not help us fulfill our calling as members of the church. They do not promise any kind of return. They are pointless without love. Now, what Paul is applying to spiritual gifts here, I want to apply to all Christian service. I want to step outside of spiritual gifts for just a moment, and this isn't just my idea to do this. The Bible does this. Colossians chapter 3 talks about the Christian as one who has died to an old way of life and has now been raised with Christ. Therefore, verse 5, put to death what is earthly in you. And it gives this whole long list. And then starting in about verse 12, put on then... And he mentions this whole list of what to put on. And then right in the midst of that, in verse 14, he says, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So the Bible teaches us that everything the Christian does, love binds it together in perfect harmony. It makes it function correctly. Jesus affirms this in Matthew 22. Verses 36 through 40. Someone says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets is a way of referring to the Bible, the Old Testament when Jesus was speaking. So he says, everything in this book is summed up in the command to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Feel the gravity of what Jesus is saying here. Every instruction in the scripture is tied to either love for God or love for neighbor, many times to both. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus demonstrates this exact truth with one of the Ten Commandments. He says, do not murder. And then he says, if you don't love your brother, but you hate him, you've murdered him in your heart. Without love... Even if you didn't commit murder, you have murdered him in your heart. Finally, Jesus affirms the centrality of love yet again in John chapter 13 in the farewell discourse, verses 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you were my disciples if you have love for one another. I could keep going and making the point, but I'm assuming you want lunch sometime today, so I'm going to stop there. Point's pretty clear. Church, we're not going to get everything right. 
But if we are going to get something right, this better be it. If we're going to get something right, it had better be love. Because if we don't get that right, we actually won't get anything right. We won't get anything right. Now, we're going to come back to verses 4 through 7 next week. Okay, We're going to come back to those verses. I want to skip down right now to verse 8. He starts making his point about the centrality of love, the fuel of love for spiritual gifts. He describes love in verses 4 through 7. We'll come back to that. Then we get here to verse 8. And he gives this final descriptor for love. Love never ends. And then he unpacks it here. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So just like the first three verses, Paul is filling the end of this section with spiritual gift language. Prophecies, tongues, knowledge. And just like verses 1 through 3, Paul is utilizing another literary device to make his point. Just like he did with the body of Christ, he's going to use some analogies to describe the purposes of spiritual gifts and to agree their extent. If spiritual gifts are for the growth of the church, then their usefulness expires once the church is grown. It's sort of like training wheels on a bike. Eventually, you don't need those anymore because now you've accomplished what you intended to accomplish. They keep the bike up, but you don't need them anymore once you're able to do so on your own. So it is with spiritual gifts. And that's kind of the point that he's making here. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But then I became a man and gave up childish ways. That's the first analogy. The second for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall be more I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. So he's going back and forth between now and then. Now and then. And he has this reference here to the perfect. The question that everyone wants to know is, well, when will these spiritual gifts no longer be needed? Or when will they cease? Or when will they pass away? This morning, our passage does not give us an exact timeline, but we do get some hints here. We know that prophecy, tongues, knowledge, these are all described as temporary gifts. But it all depends on what the perfect is here in verse 10. We know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So what is the perfect? There's a few theories here. I'm going to give you one popular theory, then I'm going to give you what I believe that the Scripture is referring to here. One popular theory is that the perfect is talking about the completion of Scripture, the Bible, specifically the New Testament. Once we have the New Testament, we don't need the spiritual gifts of prophecy anymore. 
We don't need the spiritual gifts of tongue anymore or knowledge anymore because we have the revelation now. We have the knowledge now. It's all accessible. Therefore, there are some who view the perfect as speaking of Scripture. However, I'm not convinced of this because the context of this passage doesn't seem to say anything about that. Paul's not talking about Scripture here, and nowhere in this entire letter does he even allude to the completion of Scripture. I think it's very likely that as Paul is composing this letter, as someone is recording it for him, that he probably has no idea he's recording Scripture here, much less being mindful of speaking about the canon of Scripture. Additionally, if the perfect refers to Scripture, then it's difficult to explain why in Revelation there's many mentions of prophets who are prophesying in the end times before the end. The Bible's complete, so prophecy, according to this interpretation, should have already ceased. So I don't believe the perfect here is referring to the completion of Scripture. Rather than the completion of Scripture, I believe we need to understand the perfect as referring to the eternal state at the end of time, when we are all with the Lord forever in perfection. The Greek word here is the word tilios, which means complete, whole, finished. It comes from another Greek word, telos, which simply means end or goal. So the perfect is the end, the completion, when things have reached their final destination. Everything is whole. It's not incomplete anymore, which lines up with what he's saying about prophesying in part, but now everything being made whole. Knowing in part, knowing in full. So the idea here is that at the end of time, in the eternal state, when sin is no more and we are whole and perfect, at that time we won't need these gifts anymore. We will see God face to face. We won't need these miraculous gifts. Paul's analogies explain why. It's like we're currently children waiting to grow up. We can't think straight yet, but one day it'll be fixed, and we will reason the right way. It's like looking into a mirror versus looking directly at something. Right now, I can't see God face to face. Where do I see God at? Primarily in the scriptures. It's as though I'm looking into a mirror at something else beyond. But then when the perfect comes, I will not need this to look at God anymore. I will be able to look face to face at God. Right now, we still have questions and we stumble around in the dark, but one day we will understand everything because God will reveal it to us and it will all make sense. In that day, there will be no more nighttime because the Bible says that God's glory will shine such that it will always be daytime. It's like the spiritual gifts are spiritual flashlights while we are here in the dark and they shine around and help to reveal reality to us. As we look into the scriptures and as we utilize our gifts to serve the church, our understanding of the world is growing because we're all coming together and shining these lights around in the darkness. But when dawn comes, the flashlights are no longer needed. Now, this does not 
explain to us how soon these gifts will cease. Some believe that all the miraculous gifts have already ceased and they will never be revived. Some believe that some of them are still continuing, some of them are not, and they will eventually cease as well. Some believe they're all still in full use. But we need to know here that this is not Paul's point in what he's saying. He's not trying to give us a timeline here. All of this is mentioned with the description that love never ends. This is Paul's point. Unlike temporary spiritual gifts that will pass away, love will never end. It will never end. It is eternal. This is our second point and actually our last point this morning. Since spiritual gifts are temporary and love is eternal, love is what's most important to pursue. This is Paul's whole point here. The spiritual gifts are temporary, and you are giving up and using so much energy to pursue these gifts, and I wish you would pursue love just as vigorously because these are going to pass away, but love never ends. It's eternal. It will be useful forever. The Corinthians were so wrapped up in pursuing these temporary gifts for their own benefit that they were falling short in the one area that truly matters, love. Looking back over the entire letter, this is why they had unhealthy division. They lacked love. This is why they allowed immorality to remain unaddressed. They lacked love. This is why they had conflict in lawsuits. This is why they were committing sexual immorality. This is why they divorced and failed to act properly towards their spouses. This is why they wouldn't surrender their rights or freedoms for one another. This is why they couldn't practice the Lord's Supper properly. And finally, this is why they weren't using the spiritual gifts properly. They did not pursue love. They only pursued self. Therefore, everything they did was corrupt. Nothing would work out right because they weren't pursuing love. So Paul ends with this famous statement in verse 13. Faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Some of your translations may say, these three remain. They are still here. All three of these virtues is what I'll call them are eternal in a sense. Faith, hope, and love. However, love is different than faith and hope. The Bible says that we walk by faith and not by sight. However, when we get to heaven, our faith will be turned to sight, and we shall see Jesus face to face. I do not need faith then like I need it now. It will be different. Right now, we live in hope of our future dwelling place with God. We are confident in the things that we hope for. However, when we get to heaven, our hope will have arrived. Now I am experiencing my hope forever. It is not a hope of something that has not yet happened. It's an enjoyment of what I now obtain. But love will never change. We love God and others now, and we are going to love God and others forever. The greatest of these is love. 
additionally, of these three virtues, love is the only one that God possesses. God does not have faith. God is the object of faith. We have faith in God. God does not have hope. He is the source of hope. He's where our hope comes from. He gives us hope. But 1 John 4, 8 tells us this very clearly. God is love. And the greatest picture of God's love is found in none other than Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 8 says God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But at the same time, one of the greatest warnings in the Bible has to do with love. We just quoted from it a moment ago. 1 John 4.8. I'll read the whole verse now. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Further down in that chapter, in verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In verse 17, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. The confidence that we know God and that we will stand on judgment day is that we are loving in this world like God is loving. The one who does not love, however, does not have confidence because you are not like God. You have not been born again to a new and living hope. You do not know God because God is love. Rather than confidence, the one who does not love has only fear. And many times we look at this verse in Scripture and we think, well, I'm loving, I don't hate anybody. But we've made a grave mistake. We've understood love like the world does, as an emotion or a feeling. I may act unloving toward them, but I love them, is a lie. If you do not act loving, you do not love. If you feel like you love somebody, but you treat them unloving, you are a liar, and the truth is not in you. I'm going to make it real simple for us this morning. A loveless Christian is a godless Christian. And by definition, a godless Christian is not a Christian anymore. It's built into the title. So really, a loveless Christian is no Christian at all. It doesn't exist. The label Christian is just a facade. 
And to give this the full weight of what I'm saying here, this is what facade means. Yes, I had to look this up because my vocabulary is terrible, and I'll tell you, I'm glad I did. Listen to this. An outward appearance that is maintained to conceal a less pleasant or creditable reality. There is no loveless Christian. Here's the word or phrase Jesus used. Whitewashed tomb. You look great on the outside, but you're dead. The one who says, I'm a Christian, but has not love, does not love God. Here's the second way I want to apply this, and this is more in line with what Paul is saying here in the context of the church. A loveless church is a godless church. And a godless church, by definition, is no longer a church. So really, a loveless church is no church at all. It doesn't exist. The word church is just a facade, an outward appearance that is maintained to conceal a less pleasant or creditable reality. Are you loveless? Are we loveless? as a church. And I'm not asking, do you feel like you love people here? It's not going to work to say, yeah, I feel I love them in my heart. I just haven't been acting loving. That's a lie. That's not how the Bible defines love. It misses the whole point. If you aren't acting loving, you are not loving. So maybe the better question for us is, are you being loving? Are we being loving? Here's the good news of the gospel. If not, Jesus wants to change you, and he wants to change us, but he will not do that without repentance and faith. We have to believe that we are not loving and we have to believe that he can make us loving. And then we have to turn to him and say, God, make us loving. Do to just increase your white knuckle grip on a list of actions and try to do those so that maybe more people will think that we're loving. We've got this bulletin here. with our church on it, established 1843. What a legacy. And on the front, big bold words, right above this church, we see this phrase, the friendly first. We've had some visitors visit within the last year multiple times that are not visiting anymore. Someone invited them. And this person asked what they thought about the service. I'm going to share one comment 
that I think is applicable to us that I've heard multiple times. You know, it was real good, but it feels like there's two spirits in the church. Some people just look angry. I've spoken with someone recently who is still struggling with the events that happened many years ago with Brother Dominic DiCarlo. I can see it every morning as I get up here to preach. A loveless church is no church at all. We may think of ourselves as the friendly first, but that's not our reputation. My fear is that we may be turning into something that's not a church at all. Because we are pursuing so many good things, church. Hear me on this. They are good things to pursue. But we are not pursuing love for one another. We're rude to one another. We're not kind to one another. We're resentful. Not patient. Easily irritable. The world will know that we are disciples of Christ by our love for one another. If you want Gina to come into this church and to look at us and say, oh, this is, this is what a Jesus follower looks like, they will not see that unless we repent now and turn from our sin as a body. They will not see it. We will turn our wheels and we will labor and we will build in vain. As Psalm 123 says, we must have love. If we don't, we are nothing. This morning, I'm going to do something very different. If you want to send me an angry email, that's okay. The Bible gives us a command at various places to confess. James 5 is a good example. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. That's something we as Baptists, I don't think, do as much as we should. Because we boast in our theology and we understand that, well, we're already forgiven. I don't have to confess sins to be forgiven. They're all forgiven. I'm not like those other denominations that maybe teach that we have to keep confessing to keep being forgiven. We know better. But you know, I think we've taken the pendulum and swung it too far in the other direction. And we don't confess at all. I would like to end our time this morning inviting people to confession and repentance. And here's how you can demonstrate before the church your confession and repentance. You don't have to say a word. I'm just going to ask you to come up to the front and pray up here at the altar. If you cannot kneel down, that's okay. Stand. Sit on the pew. 
this is a chance for us to repent as a church. If we are going to see revival, we will not see it before we repent from this. We will not see it. So as far as the service is concerned, I'm going to close us in prayer. And we'll officially be dismissed. If you're visiting with us this morning and you have somewhere to be, you're free to go. If you're a member and you need to go somewhere, you're free to go. After I pray, you're dismissed. For the rest of us, as God is moving us, let's repent. Let me pray for us. Lord God, you have spoken to me. You have pierced my heart with your truth. And I ask that you would pierce all of our hearts with your truth. Lord, break our hearts for our sin so that we will repent and believe you and ask you to make us into something different. Bring this about in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Brother, if you could put some music on for us, please. You're dismissed. And if you need to spend some time up here praying at the altar, please come. Thank you very much.